The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Sarah Nelson. She is the director of research at the Appalachian Mountain Club. Prior to joining AMC, she was at the University of Maine for 21 years, most recently as an associate research professor in the School of Forest Resources and also as director of the program in Ecology and Environmental Sciences. Her research focuses on understanding the effects of atmospheric pollution and climate change on our forests, food webs, and freshwaters in both remote and protected ecosystems. Her current research includes the geochemistry in lakes, climate change with a focus on changing winters and mercury contamination, using approaches including long-term monitoring, biosentinels, and citizen science. Research sites include remote or protected lands, including long-term sites across Maine, ponds in the White Mountains, and national parks across the United States. And of course, we are all noticing climate change, regardless of where we live in the country and the world. Dr. Nelson is especially qualified to talk about this topic as she holds a PhD in ecology and environmental science from the University of Maine. And she has a master's also from the University of Maine with a focus on water resources. And she also holds a BA from Columbia University in art history, criticism, and conservation. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Hi, great to be here, Melinda. You know, I was so fascinated by your research that you're doing today, but also your background. And I'm curious, how did you go from being involved with art and art history into the sciences? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I, my former students when I was at UMaine would ask about. I was always interested in the outdoors and science. My family has several folks who have careers that relate to math. And so when I went to college, you don't always know what exactly major you're going to pick right off. And I did take a number of science classes, but ultimately through a, a sort of twisted path, ended up working on art history at Columbia, which was just amazing, a great place to be in New York City with access to all of the museums. And really, I continued doing science courses all the way through. Columbia has a core curriculum that requires everyone to be really well-rounded and no matter what your major, take a number of science as well as arts and literature and language courses. So I think that was really helpful to me later in my career as I pivoted back towards science. But working in art history for my undergrad, and and now that I'm a scientist, I'm always struck by the amount of research that is in a number of fields in the humanities, including art history. It was all about research and figuring out the motivations and what was going on at the times of some of these works of art. So to me, it's all research, whether it's art or the environment. Mm. And then after college, I ended up volunteering on a river near where I grew up, the Assabet River, and realized I got engaged in that through kayaking and being outdoors and realized that environmental science 
actually was a career. Back then, it wasn't as popular as a major and in different programs and ended up volunteering, doing water quality work, looking at algae in a river upstream and downstream of, at the time, wastewater treatment plants to see what the effects of those plants were and was really excited then to go back to grad school in sciences. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I feel like, first of all, nature is so beautiful. It's art all around us. But I also think that we would be better science communicators if we used more art. I think we respond more emotionally favorably to art rather than always numbers and graphs and charts. What do you think? You've been working in climate change communication. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've also worked on a project related to data literacy and had a chance to work with teachers all around Maine and other scientists who are thinking about how we communicate with numbers and really trying to help sort through what kind of visuals have impact on people. I agree, many people really are visual learners and take in information in in a more visual way. And currently, I think there's really a lot of amazing data visualizations out there, thanks in part to the internet and these just amazing tools we can now do with mapping and interactive maps and graphs online. And I think it is, as you mentioned, such a, a much more captivating way to communicate patterns when you can see what's going on and interact with the data. Yeah. Now you left your position at the University of Maine. You were there for a couple of decades and you left to go to the Appalachian Mountain Club. What was it about AMC that drew you? Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. I love the University of Maine. I still work on a number of research projects with collaborators and colleagues there. Maine is a wonderful place to be. But this position arose at AMC, and here I have the opportunity to grow in some different ways, including linking more closely with some of the policy work that AMC does around conservation. One of the key pieces for me as I was thinking about this position when it became available was AMC places a really high emphasis on using science and using research informing positions that support our advocacy and policy. So all of our work about conservation is grounded in science and what we know and in our own research, as well as research of others that we work to analyze. So that has been really important for me as a scientist to know that the organization is very interested in making sure we have credibility backing up everything that we do. Yeah, you know, when I was researching AMC, I really liked the statement from the website said, we believe that the outdoors needs a voice. We lead regional conservation and recreation initiatives, and we advocate for science-based policies that advance clean energy, air, and water quality, and land protection, and I would add, and public health protection as well. And I'm really glad you brought up the issue about policy, because anytime I see something where a beautiful body of water, for example, is being harmed by pollutants, I always think, gosh, we need a policy. And sometimes I feel so frustrated in not knowing the next step to take. So I'm really glad for organizations like AMC that can bring us together and help us lobby for specific policies. Yeah, and it's been, as I mentioned, really great for me to get more engaged and learn more about that that world. We have wonderful policy staff at AMC. Science moves fairly slowly 
in general. We're building our, our knowledge base piece by piece and block by block. So sometimes it can feel slow in science to make great advances, but we do move forward. Whereas sometimes the need to respond is is a little more quick. And so policymakers often have to take the best information they can and work toward basing it on science, of course, and move forward. But there are, you know, regulations in place regarding clean water and clean air. And AMC has been involved in monitoring those ecosystems for decades, along with lots of other organizations and institutions in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about some of your current research which includes, for example, geochemistry in lakes. Can you tell me what geochemistry means? Yes, that's a great question. It is a bit of jargon. So primarily what I look at in lakes are the chemical characteristics of lakes. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I work a lot in remote and protected ecosystems. So it's the the chemical constituents that are in our natural Freshwaters. I don't tend to work in marine or ocean systems. I work in lakes, streams, sometimes wetlands. And so I generally look at the chemistry of those waters. So water is more than hydrogen and oxygen, H2O. It has dissolved minerals that come from the underlying bedrock, dissolved also minerals as well as organic material from soils and Everything in our environment ends up dissolving to some extent in our fresh waters. So geochemistry is really thinking about that kind of chemistry of fresh waters. I look a lot at acid rain related components, specifically sulfate. And sulfur is one of the pollutants that has been regulated through the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. So we've spent quite a long time in Maine and around the Northeast studying how surface waters respond to those reductions in sulfate in response to the acid rain issues that really came into view in the 1980s. And the source of acid rain, let's just to clarify, is that mostly coal burning activities? Yep, that uh, has typically been the largest source of the sulfate and nitrogen compounds in air that then have caused acid rain in the largely the northeastern U.S. In some regions, other sorts of combustion or emissions, um, just the, the stuff that comes out of smokestacks and tailpipes. Uh, in other regions, a lot of nitrogen pollution has its primary source from vehicle emissions. And in fact, in the northeastern U.S., where I'm sitting right now, the largest source of greenhouse gas pollutants is from the transportation sector. Mm. So um, in general, it's all related to the burning of fossil fuels. And those have sort of resulted in a a multitude of environmental issues. And we've worked to reduce the the emissions of some of these components. And now we're, we're trying to catch up in terms of greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide. Right. Well, I was also curious about another term in your bio, and that was biosentinels. And I, looking through some of your research, I noticed you're looking at the mercury contamination of dragonfly larvae. So let's talk about biosentinels, you know, what they are, and then why specifically have you been focused on dragonfly larvae? 
Yes, that is a great question. And also related to thinking more broadly about air pollution in this country. So biosentinels are a term that we're using as indicators of mercury pollution, indicators of relative risk, in this case, of mercury pollution, of food webs and for wildlife and potentially also humans. So the Dragonfly Mercury Project, which which you're referring to, is a project that began when I was in Maine. And I've done mercury research for, for a long time, beginning actually in Maine, looking at rain and snow and the concentrations of mercury and rain and snow across different watersheds along the Maine coast um, in Acadia National Park. And essentially, we found that there were relationships with the amount of mercury dissolved in rain and snow uh, related to the types of, of forest that were at a particular site. But ultimately, what we were trying to tease out is this puzzle with mercury. Essentially, we worry about mercury in this country because of fish. So mercury gets entrained into food webs and, and fish end up with relatively high concentrations of mercury in some water bodies, like a, a particular lake. But we may have a lake right next door to a lake with mercury at concentrations that could cause uh, fish consumption advisory. Again, this neighboring lake might have concentrations of mercury and fish that are average or below average. So there's this great spatial puzzle, a large spatial puzzle, I don't mean it's good, related to mercury. Why do some places have fish with high concentrations of mercury and other similar or nearby places and lakes or streams have fish that don't have such high concentrations of mercury? So that's really what we were trying to tease out, starting from what's deposited from the sky in rain and snow. Um, and then moving down into streams and soils and ultimately the living things or biota in these freshwaters. Um, fish are sampled and analyzed for mercury in uh, most states and in some national level efforts, but they can be challenging to catch. And then folks who study fish are also faced with um, issues like fish moving. So in Maine, for example, a fish might be coming in from the ocean and we're not sure if it's telling us about mercury where it was caught or somewhere else where it spent most of its life. So I worked with a team from the Skudik Institute affiliated with Acadia National Park and uh, we brought in other researchers from Dartmouth, the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Park Service and we really developed the use of dragonfly larvae as biosentinels so we can capture dragonflies all over the country um, they stay put in the in the lake or stream uh, where they were hatched from eggs. So we know we're talking about mercury at a specific site. They haven't moved from a long distance. And we find them everywhere. So we have studied national parks um, for dragonfly mercury from Alaska to Hawaii to Florida to Maine. And you'll find dragonfly larvae in water bodies. Even in the desert, we found them in small desert oases. Um, and one of the other reasons that we're using dragonfly larvae to indicate mercury risk around the country is that we can engage citizen or community scientists in doing this. So um, in the project so far, national parks will take uh, in a non-COVID year, uh, a community science group out in the field to actually do the sampling. As scientists, we couldn't make it to all these places. We've sampled over 120 parks 
we couldn't make it to all these places just with our team of, you know, a handful of scientists. So it allows us to cover the entire continent and determine these relative mercury concentrations. Wow. It also, I think, empowers people in terms of helping them know that they are protecting the environment that they live in and care so deeply about. We've got to take one break. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Sarah Nelson. She is the Director of Research at the Appalachian Mountain Club. And I find that mercury contamination is so important. I don't believe there's a health department in the country that doesn't have some sort of fish advisory, especially for pregnant women. So children, pregnant women, these are some of our most vulnerable populations when it comes to the quality of the food that they consume. And so I love that your work focuses not only on water quality, but it also enables us to see how everything is connected and certainly to our food web. And the other issue that I was hoping that we would touch on today, of course, has to do with your involvement in climate change. And of course, that affects food webs extremely. We are seeing, for example, that the nutrients in foods have been changing as a result of the level of CO2 in the environment. I wonder if mercury contamination has been affected by climatic changes. Would you say that's true? That's a really good question. And there are a number of scientists who are thinking really hard about this. It's certainly possible. And there are lots of factors that help determine whether a particular watershed, kind of the area around a water body um, specifically, may be more or less conducive to a bunch of chemical processes that allow mercury to build up more or less in a food web. And a lot of those factors are potentially related to climate change. And here I'm not speaking about any particular research, but just thinking broadly about processes like uh, runoff. So when it rains or when snow melts and water runs across the land, some of the hydrology or the movement of water, depending where you are and, and on an exact system, but does have implications for mercury, specifically as it moves soils around and, and dissolves things out of soils. So the northeastern U.S. as well as sort of the upper Midwest region have seen some of the strongest increases in the frequency of extreme events, really big rain events over the past many decades. And so, you know, scientists are looking more closely to figure out, you know, will those types of, of hydrologic changes have influences on mercury, and we um, can hypothesize that they probably would. Yeah. Well, the paper in which you were a co-author, it's titled Winter Weather Whiplash, Impacts of Meteorological Events Misaligned with Natural and Human Systems in Seasonally Snow-Covered Regions. There's a very good introduction paragraph where the events are so well linked with things that we can relate to every day. So this idea that climate change has this increase in frequency and severity of extreme weather. And what does that mean for us on the ground? You know, we've got more heat-related deaths, and we've seen that especially problematic among farm workers, for example. We see more damaged trees from winter storms as well as spring storms. And so we see widespread power outages, which lead to food safety events, as well as mold and allergies. 
And then we also see all the negative effects on water resources. And one of the terms in this paragraph is called nutrient loading to streams and lakes. And I think that many of us don't know what we really mean by nutrient loading. To me, that term means there's going to be a lot more runoff from manure and fertilizers, especially in our agricultural communities. Is that what you were thinking too? Yeah, that's certainly one piece of it. So in sort of watershed science, we're often thinking of nutrients as nitrogen and phosphorus. Those Mm. are the two big ones and they are coming from the land when they're enriched. A lot of times it's from, as you mentioned, things like fertilizer, even lawn fertilizer, if it's right along the shore of a lake. Mm -hmm. Um, And also in some cases, unpaved or dirt roads that are running along the lake shore because you know, in the very big picture, soil is still the the number one pollutant of our freshwaters in terms of erosion. So soil is a great thing. We need soil to grow not only crops, but natural communities. But when it gets into our water bodies at too fast of a rate from erosion, from either runoff that includes some of these nutrients or just soil erosion when, say, the bank's around a culvert fail, that causes problems. And really, it's all about rates, whether you're talking about erosion or emissions from burning fossil fuels, we're speeding things up to an extent that the environmental system can't sort of take care of of these sped up cycles fast enough. Mm. You make such an important point about soil being the biggest source of water pollution I don't think that we think about that so often. Erosion certainly is something that is on many farmers' minds and restoring and protecting our soil. We've lost so much of our topsoil over the decades. But I have personally experienced where farmers have maybe row crops right up against the bank of a river, and after rain, the river is just muddy And when we go through periods of drought, it's like a miracle. You know, the river becomes this beautiful turquoise blue again. So I have witnessed what you speak about. And I think there's so much implication here with regard to how we produce our food in terms of protecting our water quality. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience in agricultural systems, you know, the large systems you're talking about. But the same thing is the case when you're looking at a forest around a lake. We're really careful. The state of Maine has shoreland zoning regulations that prohibit folks from cutting all of the trees from the lakeshore, for example, in order to really keep that soil in place and keep it from eroding into lakes and causing algae to bloom, which we often don't want turning the lake water green and potentially choking out fish and other organisms. Yeah. And I wonder those common sense policies that protect the water and the soil, sometimes they're not welcomed or embraced by, say, developers who want to build homes, say, that are right on the lakeshore, the lakefront. Have you run into any kind of policy issues around these environmental protection strategies? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I really have much to say on the policy end, but there was a study I am very aware of in Maine where they actually analyzed real estate values and found that for every, I believe it's a a meter, about three foot 
um, decline in water clarity, how clear the water is, which we can measure using a, a basic sampling device. For every decline in water quality of about a meter, I think the property values declined by around $10,000, I believe. So that's kind of a, a key study showing, you know, if you think about it, as you mentioned, common sense, people may want to be on a, a crystal clear lake more than a green algae covered lake. So it sort of makes sense. Right. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important for us to connect these many dots, you know, and see ultimately how we can be that voice for the environment and help protect it and our health at the end of the day. I have so many issues that I want to talk to you about. And we're running out of time, but there's one word that I think is important for all of us to know, and that is phenology. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah, that's great. I was hoping we would end up there. Phenology is the timing of life cycle events. So if you think about, say, a plant that may flower and then later produce berries, it's the timing of when those key life events happen, the timing of flowering, the timing of berries. And at AMC, we have a longstanding project for a little over a decade tracking alpine plant flowering and other phenology here in the White Mountains. And this is super exciting because it's another community science project where people who are out hiking can take a photo of alpine flowers. And now we're expanding a little bit to other spring ephemeral flowers like trillium that a lot of people know about. And people can take a photo and upload it to a platform called iNaturalist, an app on your phone. And it goes into a global database. Other researchers identify what you've taken a picture of, even if you didn't know at all what it was. And once enough people identify it, it becomes research grade. And researchers like us at AMC, my colleague Georgia Murray, will pull the data into our projects and start looking at the timing of these plant flowering events, phenology, to see if they're linked to different climate change parameters. So it's another way that everyone can get involved with science and learn something about the natural world. You'll learn what flower you did take a picture of if you weren't quite sure. Mm. And you know, this again relates to the food web story because what we've seen often is a fruit tree will bloom and then we'll have like this warm early spring, we'll get the fruit bloom, and then we'll have a freeze. And those fruit crops that we all know are so important to our health, then become threatened because of these climatic changes. Sarah, we could spend many hours talking about all of these fascinating topics. But we just have a minute left. And I want to make sure that you have a chance to leave our listeners with something that you think is really important for them to know. Yeah, one of the key pieces I think that is important is so many people have been getting back outdoors or getting outside for the first time in the pandemic and really noticing what's going on around and taking advantage of opportunities to do community or citizen science projects. And I think the more we can get outside and appreciate and participate in the science of nature, I think the better off we'll all be. So I just encourage folks to get out and recreate responsibly and see if there are any research projects that they can lend a hand as community scientists. That's wonderful. I will provide a link to the Appalachian Mountain Club so that people can see all the great resources that you have there. You've got a great piece of information that you sent me about why it matters, impacts of changing winters, and we can all relate those to our lives. 
And then I'll also provide a link to your excellent article on the winter weather whiplash. So we must close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Sarah Nelson. She has been working on climate issues for decades and looking at how all of this is connected. She is the research director at the Appalachian Mountain Club. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Nelson. Thank you.